Noma is the place where Rene Redzepi pretty much changed the whole world of gastronomy. Let's go. Three baskets, please. For three years in a row, it was named the world's best restaurant by a jury of chefs and food writers who presumably know such things. Hello, and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Jason Jenkins. And what you just heard was the late, great Anthony Bourdain as he described Noma, the award-winning Danish restaurant that went on to win the title of World's Best Restaurant five times before announcing that it will close, at least in its present form, at the end of 2024. What you're hearing now are the sounds of Maruyama Park in Kyoto. The borders are open, the tourists are back, and among them are a select few who have booked a table at Noma Kyoto, the temporary pop-up restaurant brought from Copenhagen to Japan, where it will remain the focus of the culinary world until it wraps up in May. Before Noma Kyoto opened in March, Japan Times food critic Robbie Swinnerton met the man behind Noma, chef Rene Redzepi, for a long discussion about his plans for the Kyoto residency. Then a few weeks ago, Redzepi and some of his team were gracious enough to let us peek behind the curtain in the hour before they opened. A few days later, Robbie joined me to discuss the significance of Redzepi, the future of Noma, and how Japan fits into their culinary worldview. Hey, Robbie, welcome back. Glad you could make it. Yeah, nice to be here. Get us started. Tell us a little about Noma, its place in the culinary world, and why it's in the spotlight right now. Well, Noma, it's been in the spotlight for quite a few years, you know. It's in Copenhagen, as you probably know. It's been voted best restaurant in the world five times, according to the World 50 Best Restaurant list. Right. And it's 20 years old now, and it's finally got three Michelin stars since a couple of years ago. But why the spotlight is on it at all is because basically it's changed the direction of gastronomy in the world. Noma created this cuisine, which was based around its own territory. Mm-hmm. The name itself means Nordic Mads, which means Nordic food. Right. It's quite a radical approach. It's also radical in the sense of it's very unlike fine dining. Don't have tablecloths on the tables. They don't have like uh, waiters in starch suits, etc. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more casual than most, but it's definitely fine dining. Right. And why they're in the news right now is because they've just recently started a 12-week pop-up in Kyoto, Japan. Right. This isn't their first pop-up. They're also kind of known for doing pop-up restaurants or residencies in different cities, right? That's correct, yeah. This is their second time in Japan, but they've also done pop-ups in London, Australia, and Mexico. And in most restaurants, when they do a pop-up abroad, they just take uh, a few staff and turn out the same dishes that they serve in their main restaurants. Noma does it differently. Noma creates a totally new restaurant and a new menu each time it does this. So if I was to have gone to the London pop-up, I would have a completely different menu than the Mexico or the Australian pop-up. Absolutely, yeah, all based around the local food. To do this pop-up in Kyoto, the head chef, Reni Rodepi, tells me that they spent two years researching this. Wow. And that was on top of having done a previous pop-up in Tokyo. That was eight years ago in 2015. And then also having done a lot of research in the intervening years. So it's not just like a flash in the pan, just come to Japan, throw a few Japanese ingredients in our regular menu. It is starting from scratch. And the reason they do these pop-ups is because it's a way of learning, 
learning as a team and learning about the rest of the world and learning ways they can make their own cuisine, take it to the next level. Let's talk about the latest pop-up, Noma Kyoto. How did it come about and what's the story with it? This thing originally was scheduled for last autumn, but due to the delay in opening the borders here post-COVID, Red Zeppi decided to postpone it till the Sakura season. Good choice. And um, going back two, two, three years ago, uh, Red Zeppi and his team came up with the idea of, why don't we go off to Kyoto, back to Japan, but this time not Tokyo, Kyoto. And coincidentally, around about the same time, they were looking online and big fan of Kengo Kuma, the architect, Japanese architect, oh, mm-hmm. uh, it seems. And they saw that he just designed a hotel in Kyoto called the Ace Hotel which piqued their interest as a possible venue. When they looked into it, they found that Ace Hotel had opened, but the main restaurant in the hotel had never opened. Ah, because of the pandemic. Because of the pandemic, because there weren't no inbound tourists. Um, right. Uh, the hotel was sadly, sadly quiet these last two, <laughs> two three years. Not the best timing. Had had two, rest, two other restaurants going for the people who were staying, but the main restaurant, which was due to open as soon as people came back, mm-hmm. was still empty, and they thought, wow, this could be the ideal setting. And at the same time, things are up and running again in in Japan, and especially in Kyoto. They've also figured it might help the ACE booster come back with a bang, um, put their name on the map. And so it was a kind of synergy there. What's great about this dining room is that it's on the third floor of the hotel, Mm -hmm. but they have their own private garden out through these huge windows. Yeah, it's gorgeous. So it's almost like you're... You could be anywhere because you can't see the city really well. And it's totally, totally private. And it reminded them a little bit of their own place in Copenhagen, which has, which is outside the city and looks out onto water and has this beautiful big garden around it. So oh, that I didn't know that. It reflects, their, it reflects who they are and where they're coming from very, very well. So it's, it's, a, it's a great synergy. Yeah, it's a beautiful spot. And I loved how, I mean, those huge windows, so they get lots of natural light. And then you've got this... Sakura tree out there with petals and oh, it's just gorgeous. Perfect this time of year. Perfect. Yeah. I was glad you pointed out too when we were there, there's the little trail of shells and kombu and sort of all of these elements of Japanese cuisine. Trail, this magic trail that's leading up to the magic garden of Noma. It's a trail of leaves and shells. That are sort of dried and sort of a breadcrumb trail that goes up the stairs and to the restaurant. That was a nice touch as well. Up the stairs from the main lobby of the hotel. That's right. It starts in the lobby, doesn't it? Uh, you come in the lobby and then it's like, what's this? It's not usually there. And then you go, takes you up the stairs, up the stairs, up the stairs. It takes us right up to the third floor. And right to the beautiful Norin, which uh, marks the door to Noma. Uh, where Noma Kyoto is waiting us. Let's stay on the restaurant for a minute. So they found a place, and this isn't their first rodeo. They've moved to various cities to to do these pop-ups. I'm curious about comparing some of these places. For the Noma team, how is Kyoto different than the Tokyo time? Very different. The city is different. The environment is different. The kitchen itself is different. Sure. And actually, of course, Noma itself is different. It's, uh, it's more adept at doing these things. But... Let me take you back to 2015 when they were at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel in, in the center of Tokyo. It's a high-rise building. And the restaurant they took over was on the 37th floor. Uh-huh. And uh, you didn't really feel you were entering Noma until you 
kind of got just in the door. Uh, and even huh. then it was a little bit, they, they did a certain amount of decorating, but um, it was still very much Mandarin Oriental Hotel. Um, here in Kyoto, they've got beautiful decorations. They've totally transformed the space because it was essentially an, uh, a blank space. Uh, they, mm-hmm. they, they had free range to do what they liked to it. They've got... Uh, Strips of kombu hanging from the ceiling like a like a seaweed garden, you, uh-huh. and if the sound is muffled by very thin tatami mats across the the walls. Um, whereas up on the top of the building, you just get the room and the windows and the sky. And what they did have was actually a glimpse of Mount Fuji in the distance. But oh, right. um, but in terms of the logistics. It's also so much better at the Ace. Um, the kitchen is compact. It's a lot more compact than what they're used to cooking in, uh, their place in Copenhagen. But in the Mandarin Oriental Hotel, they actually had to have the prep kitchen and the second basement level. And so when they were sh- preparing stuff and sending it up to the restaurant, it had to come up like 29 floors, <laughs> which was, it wasn't like each dish was prepared down there and take that, but all the prep was done down sure. there. And a, a very small service elevator, not not the guest's elevator, which is all nice. And, right. So it was intense for them and they did a really good job and they learned a lot and that paved the way for them to do what came later and bringing us up to the present day in Kyoto. So the kitchen that they have now is you know, large by some standards, but considerably smaller than what they are used to, right? That's right. The present number 2.0, 2.0, is a beautiful operation. It's got a huge footprint and they got amazing kitchen. They got like four kitchens. You got a test kitchen, a fermentation facility, the in-house dining for, for the staff. And then, then they got the main kitchen for serving guests. So they're used to having a huge amount of space. Here, it's compact. The whole crew has come over for, for this event. And so they've got to fit into a kitchen about, I don't know, a quarter the size of what they're used to. This menu has been basically put together by... Four people, Rene, Redzepi, there's Mete Soburg, who has been in the test kitchen since 2015, very key person. Junichi Takahashi, Japanese chef, he's from the north of Japan, uh, but he's been in Noma for 11 years now, and he's playing a key role here in Kyoto. It was interesting to hear what he had to say about that, wasn't it? So this, this kitchen is like a much smaller than the Noma Konfian kitchen, it's like almost like maybe three times bigger than the, this kitchen. So then actually much smaller and the same amount of people, so a little bit difficult to manage. But you know, it's always people, it's walking through the behind, behind the stuff, need to be uh, like uh, communicate, you know, that's very important. So people need to communicate them uh, before. But there's a fourth person who we haven't mentioned very much yet. It's Thomas Frebel. Thomas has been with associated with Noma for like 15 years now, I think, and key person in the original test kitchen. Um, after the Tokyo pop-up, he was really excited to be in Japan and discovering Japan. And he eventually opened this restaurant called Inoa in Tokyo, which was um, kind of like Noma style, but using entirely Japanese ingredients. And within two years, he'd got two Michelin stars. He was on best restaurant lists, getting a lot of people coming from many parts of the world to be able to taste this different style of Noma cuisine, but through Thomas Frebel's eyes and and hands. And then, unfortunately, the borders closed and uh, Inoa had to close with it.
So we've talked about the people behind Noma. Now let's talk about what they're serving. I know Noma is famous for many things. Uh, they were pioneers in the locavore movement that you know, sort of focused on local ingredients and even wild foods that they foraged for themselves. They've also been at the forefront of fermenting and fermented foods. Tell me a little about these and maybe how Chef Rene Redzepi uses them, and maybe a little about how this has influenced fine dining. Absolutely, yeah. Before Noma came along, people weren't using a lot of wild foods, foraged foods, and certainly weren't devoted to to their locavore idea of only eat, using ingredients from the surrounding area. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're so far in the north, they're trying to follow the seasons. And that's kind of hard to do in Scandinavia, right? I mean, to use local ingredients because you're, at least your plants are going to be, your vegetables are going to be fairly limited, right? Especially in winter, of course, they have these long yeah. winters. And um, during that time, traditionally, what people would do in, in the Nordic countries would be to lay down foods, preserve them for the winter. So they'll be dried, they'd be fermented foods like uh, pickles and things. Uh, even, of course, the the meats would be dried or salted or kept like that. So this has led to the current Noma menu in Copenhagen where they, they have a cycle of three different menus. During the summer when there's a lot of vegetation, a lot of vegetables, that's what you'll find on your, on your plates. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually fully vegetarian now. And... During the winter, they they move to the forest, what they call the forest menu, which includes lots of fruit and nuts and uh, also uh, game food. So we have uh, that's where you get the mostly the, the meat on the menu there. Wild game like reindeer is this absolutely uh, pheasants. What are, what are we talking about? Wild game, including yeah, both those and a lot of different um, game birds, um, and then. When, when the forest season is over, when you get into early spring, they go under the water, into the ocean, which is uh, all around them in Copenhagen, and a fantastic seafood menu also there. So as spring gives way to summer, you go back to the vegetarian menu. They have three cycles there. So coming to Japan, the one idea they had, especially when they were thinking of doing it last autumn, was to go totally vegetarian, but in the Japanese way, following what they call what's known in Japan as shojin ryori. Oh, right. The Buddhist vegetarian food or the, the vegetarian food you would find at uh, at uh, Buddhist temples. That, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Especially connected with Zen Buddhism. And Rajavi told me that there was a serious consideration for them because they mm-hmm. got such inspiration from the great food they've been served at, at Buddhist temples during their research trips. However, basically it was decided that they should probably add a whole lot of seafood to it because that's what people expect when they come to Japan because seafood here is second to none. Right. And then there's, in terms of foraged foods, this is a good season for them, of course, because we have all the the wild plants known as sansai here in Japan. Um, Sansai, literally mountain vegetable. That's right, yeah. Japanese. Um, And there's a whole range of them that are eaten here in Japan. And reflecting that, uh, Noma Kyoto has one specific dish devoted to sansai, Mm. wild mountain plants. Uh, The other aspects of going back to the winter season, fermentation. Fermentation has become a massive plank of of what Noma does. They have a huge fermentation lab developing alternative ways of preserving foods, but also of developing flavors. Um, A lot of them are actually based on Japanese fermentation techniques, as well as local Nordic techniques. Right. So a lot of these involve koji, which is the traditional mold used for the fermentation of of these products like miso, soyu, and uh, soy sauce, and sake. 
but they've taken them to places which Japanese traditional Japanese food producers would never dream of, like growing koji mold on vegetables. I believe that throughout Noma Kyoto, people will be served one particular dish like that. I will not give any spoilers. <laughs> so another aspect of fermentation is katsuobushi. Uh, these are mm. the dried, cured fillets of, uh, of bonito fish, mm-hmm. which are the basic building block of Japanese dashi, uh, the soup stock that underlies all Japanese cuisine, basically. And they've taken this process and tried applying it to other types of seafood, but also to vegetables. So these are all things we'll find at Noma Kyoto. Uh, speaking of fermentation, uh, we've talked about the food. What about uh, wine and other libations? Great, yeah. That's another aspect of what makes Noma particularly interesting. Besides making a, a brand new menu for this pop-up, they've also developed a whole new drinks list. And these have been put together by the head sommelier, Ava Mace List, who has done a fantastic job traveling around Japan, visiting producers of sake, of course, wine. Japan has some great wines. Beer, too. They've made a special beer, especially for the menu. Um, Shochu, distilled spirits. Whiskey. Also botanical distillations, which will go in the uh, cocktails that she's put together. And then for people who go in the non-alcohol route, uh, there is tea, there is uh, juices, and uh, some very, very nice non-alcoholic cocktails. Yeah, it was fascinating to hear how she sourced ingredients from all over Japan. Kombu, seaweed, and peppers for the beer, small local distilleries for the whiskey, and even don't-goody acorns for the sake. Initially, I went to Tarada Honke, who we are very, very connected with and who I believe is the best sake maker in the country really wonderful person and they do everything very uh, old old style and he brought me to an abandoned rice field that he was starting to grow rice on this year and we walked around and he said you know you know my people you like foraging and we have all of these trees around here and there's this uh, particular acorn which is called a dongori which uh, he said oh yeah people used to eat that so he said, I'm thinking about throwing this into the sake. What do you think? And I said, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so it's a, it's a donguri sake. So Noma. <laughs> yeah, very Noma. And then so they- what does the menu actually look like? Well, as always at Noma, it's a multi-course menu. Uh, you have like, um, I don't know, 10 or 15 different dishes arriving in front of you during the course of the meal. Um, they're all beautifully, beautifully presented. As always, it's, this one is vegetable forward, but also there's plenty of seafood. Um, there will be, as I mentioned, a dish of wild plants, sansai. There is seaweed as a main ingredient, not just a bit part player. Um, perhaps more of interest to people who, who like seafood, lobster, spiny lobster is a key part of the menu um, so far. And fish called alfonsino, kinky in Japan. They're putting roses on, on the rice, on the cooked rice. There's tofu, of course, but not like served in a Japanese restaurant. So you can tell that they've been, they're taking the Japanese ingredients. They're inspired by them, but they're not copying Japanese cuisine at all. It's just purely, purely uh, Noma food, and it's so beautiful. It looks really good. Even though it's inspired by Japan, it's very different from what you would expect to find in a Japanese restaurant. Food 
food lovies need to book their table soon if they want to eat at the best restaurant in the world in Copenhagen as it's set to close at the end of 2024. So, Robbie, I have a confession to make. Uh, when I first began reading about Noma years ago, I was not a fan. I mean, the meal in Kyoto costs about 124,000 yen. That's just under 1,000 U.S. dollars. And, you know, when I first started reading about it, this is maybe in 2017 when they had the pop-up in Tulum, Mexico. Um, I was living in Mexico at the time, and the sort of idea of the rich and famous flying in here, in contrast to the poverty that I saw in, in other places, I just uh, I, I had the wrong impression. So when I read well, six months ago or so that they were going to close, I was sort of like, good, good riddance. I felt like they represented the elite in a certain way. Now, let me stop there and say I was wrong. I think I was looking at it completely wrong because in a way, I feel like what they're doing is is art. I want art to exist. I don't mind people paying a lot of money for for fine art. So why not fine dining? Is this how you look at it? Absolutely. I believe that it's worth spending the money on. If you have that money, you should spend it. Is it art? Ah, I, I, see, I see the cooking aspect of it more like craftsmanship. And they do it over and over again, refining it, refining it. And when it gets to the certain level, it actually turns to a kind of alchemy because they refine it from the basic ingredients, mm -hmm. the, the base material, to this kind of gold, it's gold that glitters on the plates. I mean, it's um, not everyone may see it that way, but for me, I've eaten Noma's food about seven or eight times, and each time it's been different, and each time it's blown my mind, really. It just blown my taste buds, uh, but <laughs> not just what's on the plate, but the way it's presented. The team who present it are natural and mm -hmm. friendly, accommodating, not like your usual three-star restaurant that you expect anyway in, in your mind. You know, we've all seen Ratatouille, the movie, and it's absolutely different to what they do there. Um, even have the chefs coming out of the kitchen to serve you. So you kind of see it from kitchen to plate, and it's gone from farm to kitchen. To, so, it, so it's kind of, there's, there's, a, there's a link all the way going back to the soil, to the people who've foraged, the people who've hunted. And that's one of the things that Noma does really well. Yeah. When you're talking about the team, they are a team of real people who want to connect with people and support others. I mean, the stories that you have told me, the stories I heard from Mace and from Anagret, the director, it really kind of sort of sealed the deal for me. It seems like there's more an element of compassion and support with the people that run Noma. It's fantastic to see how the whole team is reacting to it. We need to all together get used to the space and how we work and how we just run service and this is us this is noma but then there's so much more around it that needs to change and you know like yeah it's japan exactly exactly so there are certain things that uh, we had to get used to which is fantastic and certain things that we had to be challenged on um and this is what it's all about as well that there's this learning curve and sure the the jump in the ice cold water and then you just keep <laughs> swimming yeah. so something wonderful. Yeah, as soon as you walk in the restaurant, you can feel that actually. The way Noma is now is not the way it has always been, I've got to say. But it was based on very strong sense of ecological, ethical ideas, working with small producers, local producers, artisans, 
not just food, but for the uh, tableware and the decorations and things like that. So it has a, they have a very, very strongly based within the community, within the local community. And that's something that uh, they are doing here in Kyoto too. They're sourcing materials directly from the farmers and the fishermen. and Even the tatami makers too, right? Even the local tatami makers indeed, yes. And they seem to support each other uh, quite a bit, and uh, and there is quite a few of them. Tell us a little about the staff at Normal. Right. As for all their previous pop-ups, they didn't just bring a few chefs and a few front-of-house people. They brought the whole staff, the whole restaurant, 103 people in all. That's Ooh. like 79 people from the restaurant, mm-hmm. including kitchen and front-of-house, dishwashers, office. And then you got some spouses come with them. And there's a, nine children. They brought nine mm. children with them. It's because the aim of the process is not just to serve meals. It's also to learn, to learn how to serve meals. In fact, picking up on the Japanese spirit. That's another thing that uh, Rene Rodepi has, has, has mentioned to me about how it's kind of a, a giant staff training exercise. It's really interesting. It's, it's part of what makes Noma so unique that they're prepared to do this, go all the way with all the team and take it to the next level. But this also sort of begs the question of how sustainable is something like this? As I mentioned at the top, Noma announced that it will be closing its doors in Copenhagen, not for good and uh, not for for everything. What happens next when the Kyoto pop-up ends? Where do they go from there? Yes, it was interesting timing because after they announced the Kyoto pop-up, they then the announcement came that in 2024, Noma is pivoting to the next to its next stage, which they're going to be calling Noma 3.0. Mm-hmm. And it's I'm not privy to what's going on behind the scenes, but as it was announced, they're going towards de- developing and producing ingredients such as seasonings and one of the most popular ones they've been making so far is garam, which is Traditionally, garam is fermented fish seasoning sauce, but they're making it with vegetables, with mushrooms, with different ingredients, mm. and that will be one of one of the things they'll be making. But uh, I, they've got probably tons of things up their sleeve. These are things they've developed in their fermentation labs in Copenhagen, and they want to see how this goes. While also, the restaurant won't be closing totally. They'll be continue to do pop-ups, apparently, Mm-hmm. pop-ups in their own restaurant in Copenhagen. Ah. So there will be like short seasons, instead of like long, long seasons of seafood, forest foraging, etc. there will be just like short, shorter pop-ups um, while they get on with the, the business of um, satisfying the demand for, for their garams and other uh, ingredients. Meanwhile, they've also launched a burger restaurant. I don't know if you were aware of this. They have a burger restaurant in Copenhagen, which emerged out of their pandemic. What they were doing during the pandemic was actually running, they did a takeout burger restaurant, which seemed so popular. We got a meat version and also a non-meat version, a vegetarian version. So that will be continuing too. I don't see this as the end of Noma at all. I see this actually the start of something very interesting. And who knows? I mean, They'll be totally geared up for flexibility. They could do a pop-up anywhere in the world while also continuing their food production in, in Copenhagen. And who knows, maybe they'll come back to Japan for a third time. Maybe so. I read an earlier draft of your interview, and 
uh, Red Zeppi really seems to be smitten by Japan. He talked about feeling like a novice again, and that he had some sort of unfinished business with Japan. Does that indicate maybe a return in the future? I asked him about that. Yes, I asked him, "Why are you back in Kyoto? Do you have any unfinished business?" And he said, "No, I'm, we were, you know, we were complete when we left last time, which was eight years ago. Mm-hmm. But we've moved on so much." To the present day, that it was uh, it was time to do it again. When they were thinking of where did they really wanted to pop up, yeah, indeed, Kyoto was the place. So mm. I cannot speak on his behalf, other than to say, who knows what will happen. Well, Robbie, thanks for coming back on the show again, man. Really good to be back. Thank you. Thanks again to Robbie Swinnerton for serving up some of his insight into fine dining and for letting me tag along in Kyoto. If you want to read more of Robbie's work, including his previous reviews of Noma and interviews with Rene Redzepi, you'll find links in the show notes. Did you like this episode? If so, then please consider leaving us a review. It's still the best way to help listeners find us. And also a quick announcement. The Deep Dive team will be taking a long sought after break starting this week. So you'll see a few encore episodes in the feed until we return. We look forward to sharing new episodes with you sometime after Golden Week. Production and editing for Deep Dive is by Dave Cortez. Our ending track is by Oscar Boyd, and our theme song is by 4L. And this is our last show with our intern, Natalia Makahon. Thank you so much, Natalia. Thank you, Jason. It's been a lot of fun. I'm going to miss you guys. Yes, and you're going to be missed around here too, Natalia. And now, there's only one thing left to say. Natalia, would you like to do the honors? Yes. Thanks for listening. Pasukarasama. Pasukarasama. Pasukarasama.